This is Smart Women, Smart Power, a podcast that features conversations with some of the world's most powerful women. The overall aim is how to ensure that the UK has the economic independence to set its own regulatory rules. We feature women who are breaking barriers and shaping the future of foreign policy, national security, international business and development. I'm Beverly Kirk, the director of the Smart Women, Smart Power Initiative at the Center for Strategic and International Studies in Washington. Another Brexit deadline is looming. Britain is due to leave the European Union on January 31st. On the 31st of January, the UK will spend its last day as a member state. But when the sun rises again on February 1st, the European Union and the United Kingdom will still be the best of friends and partners. We will still contribute to each other's societies like so many Brits have done in the European Union and as so many EU citizens do here every single day. The Conservative Party's sweeping win in December's elections, giving Prime Minister Boris Johnson an 80-vote majority, means the departure is happening, barring something extraordinary happening. I spoke with Dr. Amanda Sloat, a Robert Bosch Senior Fellow in the Center on the United States and Europe at Brookings, about what's likely to happen once Brexit is finally official. Dr. Amanda Sloat, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. Well, let's talk about the House of Commons voting to approve the withdrawal agreement known as Brexit. So what's next? A vote in the House of Lords? Yes. So uh, three and a half years after the British voters decided in a referendum that they wanted to leave the European Union, we are finally nearing the end, at least of the first phase of this process. On January 9th, the House of Commons voted 330 to 231 to ratify the withdrawal agreement bill, which is essentially the legislation that puts the Brexit divorce into law. Given how much debate we had about this through 2019, all of the failed efforts that ultimately ended up costing former Prime Minister Theresa May her job, it's quite remarkable that this vote almost happened without anybody noticing. Uh, So now the week of January 13th, the bill moves to the House of Lords. It's possible that the House of Lords is going to try and introduce some amendments. The government does not have a majority there. There are things that they're concerned about in terms of parliamentary scrutiny. But because they recognize that they are not the elected body, they normally ultimately defer to the House of Commons. So we will see this vote in the House of Lords. Uh, It'll then go back to the House of Commons if there are any final changes. And then it will go to the European Parliament, which is scheduled to vote on January 29th. Which is two days before the quote unquote deadline was uh, on January 31st. I'm curious, you mentioned that the government doesn't have the majority there, but there's not really a risk of the Lords doing something that would challenge what the Commons passed, right? There isn't really a risk, although it is notable that government officials came out after the Commons vote, essentially warning the Lords not to do anything to screw this up and reminding them that there was a democratic mandate coming out of the referendum. And given that the legislation originated in the Commons, the bill will come back to the House of Commons. And so if the Lords adds anything, the Commons could ultimately strip it out. Are there any reasons why it had such an easier time, aside from Boris Johnson getting the 80-seat majority in the elections in December? Were there other factors that helped this pass much more easily without the contention that we saw in 2019? 
Certainly the December elections were a huge factor in this. Boris Johnson now has an 80-seat majority, which makes it much easier for him to pass any legislation. By last December, he didn't have any sort of majority at all. And Theresa May's government was dependent on the 10 members of the Democratic Unionist Party from Northern Ireland to prop up her government. And so it was incredibly difficult, given that very narrow majority and the competing interests to get anything through. So the election certainly was a huge factor. The other thing that helped is Boris Johnson managed to do something last year that many people said was impossible, which was renegotiate the withdrawal agreement with the European Union. One of the pieces that had been most unpopular and that was causing a lot of problems for people was the handling of Northern Ireland. Uh, We can talk about Northern Ireland in in more detail later, uh, but there had been concerns about provisions for Northern Ireland, which would have trapped the entire UK in a customs union with the European Union. And so given that Boris Johnson was able to renegotiate that, it alleviated some of the concerns that especially hard Brexiteers had about what the divorce settlement was going to look like. Let me continue on the Northern Ireland string now, if that's okay. There hasn't been a government there in, you were telling me, three years. Are there particular issues that still need to be resolved that come out of Brexit or are related to Brexit for Northern Ireland? So Northern Ireland really ended up being the most complicated piece of the Brexit divorce. And I think it surprised a lot of people who were not paying attention to that. So when Brexit happens, all of the UK, including Northern Ireland, leaves the European Union, including its customs union and its single market. The Republic of Ireland remains in the European Union. And so that border between Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland becomes the only land border that the UK has with an EU member state. Given the way the European economy works, you need to do checks on goods that are crossing that border to ensure that what is passing the border is in compliance. So the same way goods crossing Mm -hmm. from the United States to Canada need to be checked so that people are aware of what's passing through, the same thing needs to happen on that border there. This is especially important because one of the reasons for Brexit is that the UK wants the right to deviate from EU rules and regulations, and so they might produce and import things that are different from what's compliant with the EU. The problem in Northern Ireland is that because of the legacy of the conflict, the solution that you might have in other places, like on the U.S.-Canada border, to have electronic checks or some sort of infrastructure would be practically impossible and really psychologically devastating for people that are living there. So there was a lot of discussion over the last year about how to handle this. The initial proposal in Theresa May's deal was known as a backstop. That was essentially an insurance policy saying that if the UK and the EU can't come up with a future trade agreement, we will keep all of the UK in the EU's customs union so that those rules align and we don't need to treat Northern Ireland separately. That was something that really upset the hard Brexiteers because they want the freedom to make their own rules and they don't want to be trapped in the EU rules any further. And so what we ended up coming up with, what Boris Johnson revised, was a protocol for Northern Ireland that is going to remain in place once Brexit happens. In very short order, it says that Northern Ireland is going to stay part of the UK customs territory, but it is going to be aligned with EU customs rules. And so essentially, rather than having checks on goods moving north-south on the island of Ireland between the Republic of Ireland and Northern Ireland, there will be checks on goods moving east-west. So the customs border is essentially in the Irish Sea. So goods moving from Great Britain to Northern Ireland would be checked to ensure that they are in compliance if there is a risk that they will move into Ireland and the rest of the EU. That sounds 
Very complicated. <laughs> it does sound complicated, but I'm sure it all makes sense. It is It is going to be complicated. And in many ways, Boris Johnson reverted back to what Theresa May had initially negotiated, which is a solution for Northern Ireland only. So essentially, the overall aim is how to ensure that the UK has the economic independence to set its own regulatory rules while ensuring that the EU's single market is protected in terms of the goods that are transiting there and ensuring that there's no physical infrastructure being placed on the border. But you're right, it's it's all very complicated and it's raised a lot of really complicated questions. And there is a transition period for all of Brexit, which I think the deadline for that is December 2020, correct? Correct. So that once we get past the January 31st deadline, the new deadline that everybody will be looking at is, is New Year's Eve at the end of this year. So even though January 31st is Brexit day, right. nothing really is going to happen. There was a lot of concern if you had a no-deal Brexit that suddenly catastrophic things would happen in terms of food shortages and right. long lines at ports of entry. Uh, nobody's going to see anything different on February 1st. All of the rights that the UK has as a member of the EU will continue. So goods will be able to continue transiting. Uh, judicial matters will continue. Students that are studying will continue. But the UK will no longer have a seat in EU institutions and will not be able to make a say uh, in terms of how these decisions are being made. And the idea for this transition period is that it lets citizens and businesses adjust to the new reality of Brexit. And also it lets the UK and the EU negotiate what their future economic relationship is going to look like. And part of that is negotiating a trade deal that is strictly between the UK and the EU. Correct. So if you think about this, a lot of people, uh, including Boris Johnson, are suggesting that Brexit is done. Uh, unfortunately, we really are only at the end of the beginning. And in many ways, the discussion on this future relationship is going to be much more contentious uh, because the UK is now going to have to come in and negotiate what it wants from the EU in the future. So the divorce is finalized, but the future relationship needs to be sorted out. And one of those big questions is what the economic relationship between the two sides is going to to look like. Uh, Boris Johnson does not want to stay in the customs union anymore. He wants to have economic freedom to make regulatory and financial decisions. And yet the UK is the single biggest trading or the EU is the single biggest trading market for the UK. And so for example, they'll point to the Canada-style free trade agreement. Mm -hmm. This took about six to seven years to negotiate. So the idea that you are going to do all of this within a one-year period is very unrealistic. Uh, the European Commission president, Ursula van der Leyen, who was in London uh, around January 7th or so, said that she thought that was going to be very unrealistic. Now, you could extend the transition period. That needs to be decided by the summer. Boris Johnson has already ruled already that said, out. No, that's not happening. He's saying we need to sort all of this out. So most experts believe it's simply impossible for the two sides to reach agreement on everything within 11 months. Uh, so it means that you'll likely either have sectoral issues that are agreed or some sort of general framework. And the negotiating of the economic uh, issues and policies might be a little bit complicated for Boris Johnson, given what's happening on the foreign policy side. And I'm referring to Iran here and whether he is going to side with his European colleagues or since he wants to have a UK-US trade deal, will he want to favor President Trump's positions on, on foreign policy. So that's something else that's a layer of complication that maybe wasn't 
evident a few days ago, but given what's going on in the world, it's been pushed to the forefront. So the Iran crisis is Boris Johnson's first foreign policy crisis, and you're really seeing for him a lot of foreign policy and economic policy coming to the fore. Uh, Ideologically on Iran, Boris Johnson is much more closely aligned with Europeans. He was very supportive of the JCPOA, the Iran nuclear agreement, certainly as as foreign secretary. He's remained supportive of it. Uh, But at the same time, he wants to negotiate a free trade agreement with the United States. One of the big benefits of Brexit was supposed to be that the U.K had the freedom to negotiate these agreements with other countries. And so he doesn't want to alienate President Trump, who he needs to help him on these free trade agreements. Uh, So he's going to have a really difficult balancing act. Uh, One other thing, just to say generally on on this whole question of of free trade agreements, the UK is going to need to make a fundamental decision about where it wants to align. It's impossible to be closely aligned to both the European Union and the United States. So on a U.S. free trade agreement, for example, it's been very clear that the U.S. is interested in dealing with issues like pharmaceutical pricing. The U.S. has different attitudes on things like genetically modified foods. Uh, The Brits will always talk about chlorine-washed chicken in the United States. If Boris Johnson agrees a free trade deal with the United States that deviates on those environmental and economic issues, he's not going to be able to have close trade on agriculture and economic issues with the European Union. And so really in these negotiations with the EU, he needs to decide where he's going to position himself. And so a lot of what he decides in these EU negotiations is going to affect what he negotiates with the U.S. Just to make this more complicated, there's then the additional Northern Ireland factor. The more closely aligned the U.K. stays with the EU, the less friction you're going to have in Northern Ireland because the rules are going to be quite closely aligned. If Boris Johnson deviates from the EU, it's going to mean that there's going to be more differences between Great Britain and Northern Ireland, which is going to create greater complexity there. So that's why I say that this coming year actually is going to raise a lot of really complicated questions for the UK. And also complicating the negotiations with the US is that we're in a presidential election year. Right, right. Now, just to to, to set people's expectations, free trade agreements are not negotiated quickly. Uh, This one with the European Union really needs to be done. President Trump, of course, has been very enthusiastic about having a free trade agreement with the UK. Uh, It's impossible to see how they're going to get a EU one done and a US one done within this year. So we will be looking into the next administration before that's finalized. Uh, and then you also need to go through congressional ratification. Uh, but certainly there's there's a lot of uncertainty in, in politics now on both sides of the relationship. How are issues such as cooperation with the EU, and I'm jumping back to the UK and the EU now, but issues such as cooperation on security and law enforcement, how is that impacted by Brexit and the the transition period? So those are other aspects of the future relationship that need to be sorted out during the transition period. Uh, The economic issues that we've been discussing have gotten a lot more publicity Mm -hmm. generally, uh, but there's also a lot of issues in terms of security. Uh, The UK, as part of Brexit, will be leaving the European arrest warrant mechanism. They will be leaving Europol in terms of information sharing. So they'll need to work out mechanisms to be able to share intelligence information, for example, with their closest European partners on movements of suspected terrorists 
suspects, for example, uh, Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland have used the European arrest warrant to deal with people that may have committed sectarian attacks in the north and then fled down to the Republic of Ireland. So that will have to be dealt with. Uh, There's going to be questions about data privacy and tech, for example. Uh, If anybody's ever gone to Europe, you know that whenever you try and log on to a website, you need to approve Approve. under the GDPR uh, the the sharing of your, your personal data. The U.K. will need to decide whether it wants to stay part of the GDPR system. Uh, And then this is also going to have implications for whether or not they align more closely with the United States on some of these digital and and tech issues. Uh, The U.K. had been part of of Galileo and some of these security programs that the European Union was was developing. So that all needs to be resolved as well. The one thing that will stay consistent is that the U.K. will be a member of NATO. Uh, Its preference has always been for a lot of European security needs to be dealt with primarily through NATO anyway. So there is going to be a question of whether the UK puts much more emphasis on NATO and its security partnership there. But certainly in terms of police cooperation and intelligence sharing, those issues are all going to have to be resolved in the year as well. That was going to be my follow-up question. All of this has to be done by December of this year. I mean, if, if Boris Johnson decides not to extend the transition period, that is the, the time frame that they have to decide these things. I think Ursula van der Leyen and others have come out and have said that that's unrealistic and they're going to have to prioritize. They're not going to be able to resolve every single problem over the next year. So what they're going to have to do is look at the most pressing issues on the security front, on the economic front, and deal with those. Uh, but Brexit really is, is something that is going to be with us for years and years to come because there are so many aspects of this relationship that need to be addressed. And let me jump to Scotland before we run out of time. What are the implications of Brexit on the Scottish independence effort? And I ask that because the SNP, the Scottish National Party, in the December elections gained a lot of seats. And they were the party that pushed for the referendum on independence the first time around. It failed. But What are the implications now that they have more power? There's a lot of questions about what Brexit is going to mean for the future unity of the UK. Uh, And I will plug a Brookings paper that I wrote about a year ago called Divided Kingdom, which looks more deeply at these questions on on Scotland and and Northern Ireland. Northern Ireland, just to say, you've started to hear rumblings of questions about whether you'll ultimately have a referendum on whether or not Northern Ireland unifies with with the Republic Republic of Ireland. That, I think, is is some years away. but, But that's a question that's come to the fore with Brexit. In Scotland, it's 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 even more complicated. Scotland voted 63% to stay in the in European the Union, including majorities in every constituency. And so you have a huge amount of frustration in Scotland that they are being forced out of the EU because of the, the English. And so that really is reanimating some of these independence debates. Scotland had a referendum on independence in 2014, and that lost. That was seen, especially by Boris Johnson and others, as a once-in-a-generation referendum. Nicola Sturgeon, who's the head of the Scottish National Party, says that the situation is now qualitatively different following Brexit, and that given the fact that the UK is leaving the EU, that Scotland has tended to be much more pro-EU, as seen in the Brexit debate, they want the right to be able to vote again. Uh, There's a couple of challenges here. One, Boris Johnson has been very clear that he does not support a Scottish independence referendum anytime soon. Uh, Nicola Sturgeon has been clear that the only way she would take Scotland out of the UK is through a sanction 
petitioned process. Uh, people may have been watching what's been happening in Catalonia, where their independence referendum was not sanctioned by the Spanish government. Scotland's very clear that this needs to happen through an orderly constitutional process. Uh, there's Scottish Parliament elections in May of 2021, and so the British government is not going to want to do anything in advance of that to give the SNP a, a leg up. Uh, opinion polls have tended to hover around 42 to 45 percent in Scotland, so there has not been an overwhelming shift, although there was a poll out in September showing it reached around 50 percent for the first time. Uh, people are certainly seeing that divorce is messy. Uh, if it's this complicated to end a union of 40 years with the EU, how much harder is it going to be with the EU uh, or with the UK after after over 300 years? Uh, people are seeing that referenda do not definitively answer political questions. We were talking about a second Brexit referendum. We're now talking about a second Scottish independence referendum. And then there's also going to be the issue of the border. And people have really seen that much more closely, given what's been happening in Northern Ireland. You wouldn't have the same existential questions that you have in Northern Ireland. But if you've been used to for over 300 years, your animals and, and right. your people crossing the border very easily, it'll certainly be very inconvenient to have to have border checks if Scotland leaves the UK and rejoins the EU. So this is not something that I would expect to happen within the next year or two. Uh, but certainly this is going to going to be a continued demand coming from the Scottish government. And especially once we see what Brexit looks like in practice, if it's disadvantageous to Scotland, uh, I think that call is likely to get even louder. And one military-related question, uh, the UK's only nuclear submarine base is in Scotland. That would be another complicating factor that would have to be dealt with if if Scotland left. Scotland has generally been very anti-nuclear. A lot of people in Scotland don't like the fact that that base is there anyway. Uh, certainly the UK government would want its nuclear base if there was a divorce with Scotland, but it would be extremely expensive and complicated to move. Uh, it's not so like selling a house and buying a new one. That is very true. That is very true. So that that's absolutely going to be a, a complicated issue that would have to be sorted out uh, if we get to the point where we have divorce negotiations between Scotland and the rest of the UK. Well, we can't end this podcast without talking about the other exit going on right now in the UK. Uh, it has been termed Megxit, which I don't like that term because I don't know that I necessarily think that Prince Harry and Meghan uh, made this decision because Meghan wants it. I, right. I think it is probably a, a couple decision, but they've decided to step back as senior members of the royal family. I, it's, it's actually been an interesting juxtaposition to watch that play out on the same week that the UK Parliament finally took this definitive vote on on Brexit. And I think certainly the tabloids have given much more play to the Meghan and Harry decision than they have to to what's happening in, in Parliament. Uh, it'll be interesting to, to see how all of this plays out. I think the Americans have always been very interested in the British royal family, that much more so now that we have an American uh, who is part of the, the royal family. Uh, but really a sad story, I think, of a lot of the, the racial abuse that she received from the press, uh, the very damaging tabloid culture that Prince Harry is particularly sensitive to, given that it contributed to the death of his mother, Princess Diana, uh, and raises uh, interesting questions. I, so perhaps we will be seeing more of them in, in the, the U.S. Uh, over the, the coming years, and will be fascinating to see how yeah, they're which would be able to which would be lovely, right? <laughs> uh, that's true. That's true. I, although Canada seems to be their, their yes. preferred destination. So, uh, yes, a, another exit to watch in the new year. All right. Dr. Amanda Sloat, great to talk to you. Thank you for being here. Thanks for having me. And thank you for joining us. 
Subscribe to the Smart Women Smart Power podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to good content. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at Smart Women, and I'm at Beverly Kirk. Thanks for listening. See you next time.